And that's why I want to continue. I promise we can spend a few weeks looking at some of the reasons that Paul was able to be thankful in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. What's funny is, is like, as far as like traditional preaching from the front of the room goes, like I'm already I'm a, a week late. You know, Thanksgiving was just the one sermon you teach before Thanksgiving, and then you move on to like nine and a half billion Christmas sermons. But I sort of want us to think or to be framed, to have a framework for what it means to, to celebrate Thanksgiving in our lives, especially because we are to be incredibly thankful this time of month. Uh, as or this time of year as we celebrate the coming and the arrival of Jesus. And so Paul's words here really do resonate with our hearts, or they should anyways, no matter what side of the coin that you found yourself on. If you're in a hard place today, he encourages us to be thankful. You can be thankful during difficult circumstances. And if you are thankful in this present moment in your life, you are encouraged to continue to be thankful. And this is very true regarding the people that he's writing to, the Corinthian church. Now, I addressed this in full last week, so I'm not going to revisit that this morning. But last week, we talked about how the Corinthian church, because it had reached so many unbelieving people, um, there were lots of difficulties there. The natural reality of what happens when people that are far from God start to get close to God. Their worlds collide. And Paul is writing them this, this amazing letter or letters that are highlighting some of the places where he is concerned. It's a very challenging circumstance. But he opens his letter by giving thanks for those people. And that was the gist of what we talked about last week. Despite all the difficulties Paul was facing, he still managed to have a heart that was able to give thanks. And so the objects of Paul's thankfulness, what we began looking at last week, we'll look at today and also in the week that follows. And through them he shows us, and this is important to hear, giving thanks is a hard attitude that is not relegated just to the mountaintops. It is also something that should be celebrated in the valley. So whether our life is on a high right now or a low, thanksgiving, the ability to be thankful is not something that is meant to be predicated upon the circumstances we endure in life. They can certainly affect it. But in Jesus, we're given sort of this, at least we're offered, this unassailable opportunity to be thankful. Uh, by thankful, I don't mean happy or joyous. I mean, you're not necessarily going to be you know, exuberant about some of the circumstances you face in life, but you can be thankful. You can be rooted in something far more substantive than this, the shifting circumstances of life. So there are several things he points out in this passage that we should be thankful for. Last week we discussed that it is each other. This is the foundation of what he talks about here. It's the grace working in Jesus, Jesus' people. So we should be thankful for each other. And we began looking at that, and today I want to add a layer of truth to that. I want to spend some time talking about some of the hard attitudes that can actually keep us from being thankful for God's people. And the reason why this is important is because Perhaps now more than ever in the history of the modern church, there are tons of people who profess a love in Jesus but want nothing to do with any of his people. It's sort of this cataclysmic reality of, of something very contrarian to what the Bible teaches. And there are reasons, well, we can't look at them all, but we'll look at a few, that can often impede our hearts from being thankful for other men and women who are following Jesus. During my teaching time today, I'm also pretty excited. We're, we're going to hear on the back end of this teaching from our, our Roatan mission team from a few weeks ago. They traveled overseas and did some incredible work down south, uh, south meaning out of our country. And I really want you to know the reason for this. I want to juxtapose in a very strong way sometimes how the selfish attitudes of people can really impede the work of God. But when we see the selfless attitudes of people, my goodness, God can do amazing and wonderful things. And so I really mean there to be like a polar divide between attitudes that can often hurt people and attitudes that can actually really help people know and grow in the grace of Jesus. And so this leads me to the only truth I want to discuss today. We want to be able to give thanks for your church family, for the people of God as we discussed last week. 
Because God has given us each other to support each other and build his kingdom together. We cannot build his kingdom together. We cannot grow in him to the degree that God desires for our lives if we attempt to follow him alone or apart from other men and women that are on the same journey. And I'll reiterate the section of 1 Corinthians we're going to touch on today. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 6. I always thank my God for you. This is Paul speaking, because, and he's speaking about the Corinthian people here. Because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus, for in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Now, last week we pointed out in this text that the key to being thankful, I want to be more pointed with it today, the key to being thankful is never rooted in a circumstance. It is dependent on trusting Jesus in the circumstance. And the particular example we have of this here in Paul's case is rather than being crushed by the weight of the problems the Corinthian church was facing, that's the circumstance, Paul chose to be uplifted by the, the promise that God is faithful, God was faithful and actively working in the people of the Corinthian church at that time, and that he was going to finish the good work of redemption that he began in them. And so Paul was able to do something that is critical for the Christian to be able to do. It's a discipline we have to both train our hearts to, to practice and ask for God to enable, because I think it can be a very difficult one. You see, Paul knew to fix his eyes on his heart, of his heart on the promises and the faithfulness of God during that troubling time. He knew through truth, this is why he's writing this, and personal experience, that the best way to deal with tumultuous circumstances, whatever they are, is to focus on the only constant in this world and in his life, Jesus. So he's able to look beyond the difficulties, which are legion at this point, and he's able to dial into the horizon of Jesus Christ. And because of that, he is able to find hope in a situation that seems moderately hopeless at this point in his life. Because his ultimate hope is not in the circumstance, it's in the God working in the circumstance. And when you see life this way, there's literally no circumstance that you can remove God from working from. Because God is present in you. So whatever circumstance you deal with, if you are in Jesus, he is present in you, working in you through them. And today it is no different for us. Paul's uh, sort of thankfulness plea here is the same for us. It might be a different scenario, but it's the same root attitude. If you really think about this, this is the whole reason, at least in the Christian church, that we, we sort of celebrate or highlight the holiday season. We, you know, we could just show up here on the 22nd and have a mini Christmas party and move on, but the idea of Advent is that it, it frames a, a much longer reality than a single day. We don't want to move on from Christmas after it's passed on the calendar. Because what we study in Christmas, what we learn about Christmas, what we celebrate in the great tradition of Advent, is that our, our hearts are meant to be, both emotively, spiritually, and physically, we're, we're meant to sort of be re-reminded of what it was like to be in the first century world, waiting on Jesus to come. And just like those first century Christians, they had all kinds of things going on in their lives. And in every circumstance, what we're trained to do, what we're taught to do, what we're told to do, the Advent table is a great example of this. We're meant to look beyond earthly circumstances to the heavenly realities of the way Jesus works in them. That's truly what the table is for. That's why we celebrate communion. That's why we celebrate Christmas in and of itself. It's why we celebrate Good Friday and Easter. All of these are, they're not holidays in the Christian faith. They're meant to be Ebenezer's that we raise. They're times when we, we try to deeply focus on them so that we can reroute and orient ourselves in the person and the work of Jesus. And so the true power of the Christmas season 
is not just that we get great deals on electronics. I mean, that's like a tangible side benefit for some of us. But you've got a lot of people in the world who are happy that they pepper sprayed somebody. Remember what I said last week? For a television at Walmart this week, and they'll be arrested sometime next week. That's all they see. They're just out there thinking, like, this is a great time to get cheap electronics. But the rest of, the, of their life goes on after this ends. And so this is not meant to be an ending point or, or a seasonal holiday. It's meant to be something that reroutes us in the permanence of what Christmas means. The true power of the Christmas season is that it gives us a very focused opportunity to remind ourselves of the truth that every follower of Jesus has professed with their mouth and believed in their heart. That our ultimate hope in this world cannot be rooted in having the circumstances of our life arranged in such a way that they create a seemingly perfect life for us. I'm not discouraging you for praying for these things. I'm not discouraging you for, from seeking them. I'm just saying if your ultimate prayer is that the circumstances of your life are always set up in some utopian way to where there's never difficulty, there's never struggle, there's never trial. The majority of people that have walked this earth for any amount of time know that that is just that. It's a, it's a utopian ideal. It's not possible. Circumstantial peace, it can be rare. Think of people who suffer from chronic illnesses or they, they've had lifelong problems or addiction issues. The, for some people, there, there seems like there is no season of peace. So we cannot eliminate that from our minds in our own lives and in the way that we minister to people. And for some of us that have had really great seasons of wonderful circumstances, we all know that they are typically temporal. There's no such thing as a permanent you know, season where nothing ever goes wrong or there isn't a challenge or a problem. We might desire that when we come to places like this and watch fairy tales on screens like this that show stories and narratives with, with great and immense happy endings. But not every story in life is a happy ending. And the beauty of this sort of weighty reality I'm speaking about here is that even in sorrow, there is light. There is an incredible way that Jesus works. We're, we're equipped not only to be able to celebrate the, the high points of life. Jesus is not only equipping us, but he stands with us during the seasons of life that are very difficult. And so our, hope, our ultimate hope in life is really uh, it's, it's the source of our thanksgiving. It comes from the deep understanding that, that Jesus is Lord. And this is something we're going to be talking about in the new year. This idea of, I have a whole other sermon that just popped up in my head, and I would like to like run down it right now, but I'm not. I just want us to know, because you want to leave at some point, and so do I, frankly. Jesus is Lord. I want you to think about that statement. When, when we really believe that, that Jesus is Lord, what that means is he's Lord of every area of our life, including our circumstances. And I think for our hearts to become more acquainted with that, the practical reality of what it means to see Jesus and to serve him as Lord. Man, there are some incredible things that come out of that. In the particular case of what we're talking about today, it's that he is with us and has promised to never leave or forsake us in all of life's circumstances. To say Jesus is Lord, to believe that, means that the king stands by our side. He never leaves us. In addition to that, in addition to that, he's given us each other. And I really think that this is, is two sides of the same coin. He doesn't just give us himself. He gives us each other and binds us together in these communities that we call churches to remind us of the truth when we forget it. And in some instances, to carry each other through our challenging seasons of life when we feel that we can't go on. And this is one of the true beauties of understanding the, both the theological and the practical significance of why God desires that we are a people who follow him together, that we never follow him alone. It's such a clear truth in the Bible. It's, it's undeniable. There are, you know, there are some things in the Bible where you can almost read these ideas and you can see why people might arrive at different conclusions. 
That's part of biblical study. But then there are some things in the Bible that are so explicitly clear that you wonder, like, how could you arrive at any other conclusion? And this is what I find ironic about what we have been talking about, is that this, this idea, this truth of being in community is so central, not just to the way God the Father, Jesus, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit are with each other, but we're invited to be a part of that community with each other. It's so clear in the Bible, yet there are so many people that, that either deny it, maybe they have a, a, a benevolent ignorance, meaning you know they're new in the faith and they don't understand it, or maybe they know that the Bible teaches this, they just care little or nothing for it. It's a truth they just... They've, they've looked at, and for whatever reasons, oftentimes they are selfish. They know that community like this, deep-seated brotherhood and sisterhood in the faith, is something God cares about and calls us to. They just choose to not listen to God in those areas of life. Or, I think this is, this is a double-edged sword here, people actually see that as a reality. They don't see a need for people in their lives. What that means somewhat consequently is that they likely feel like they have no responsibility to be that type of person for somebody else in, in their life. And because of this, some people just outright resist the very truth we're talking about today. They outright resist the biblical truth of community, or they choose to have a somewhat nominal relationship with a church family, meaning they're, they're connected, but very, very, very loosely. Very loosely, like they're around on occasion, or maybe they're in proximity with people, but they're not actually in deep and meaningful relationship. And so for the next couple of minutes, I wanna just point out three things. I'll be kind of brief here, but I wanna point out three main reasons that people can arrive at this conclusion. How can they read a passage like 1 Corinthians? How can they look at the work of Jesus in the world that you know, the very inception of the church is Jesus and plural disciples? The, the nation of Israel, it wasn't one Israelite. Yeah, it began with Abram, but it ends up with this mass group of people. Every place you turn in the Bible, you will find God calling us to be a group of people, loving and serving him with each other. So how is it that some people can, can so clearly see these things, but then adopt postures that are so contradictory? Well, there's a ton of reasons, but I want to share three very common ones. We, we might say these are the umbrella ideas that all these other things dangle from. And then we're going to hear, in closing, a, a wonderful story of what God can do when we avoid ideas like this, and we actually labor together, support each other in the kingdom of God. So the first thing I want to mention on the negative side of the fence is some people avoid meaningful relationships in a church family because they have unresolved issues in their heart. And whenever I say church family, if I want to be very clear about what I mean by this. That means any type of connection you have with other men and women that love Jesus. That can be in a room like this. That can be in a community group. That can be in peer relationships, that can be in lunches you have with people. Anytime you have contact with another Christian, that is what I mean by the family. You, you really can think about this in your own lives, in your own families. There's, you know, a family has like 20 ways they connect. Sometimes siblings go out, sometimes a mom and a sibling go out, sometimes a mom and a dad go out, sometimes you're doing leisure things together, sometimes you're cleaning the yard. There's all kinds of things, sort of relational contact points, that make a family a family. And our church is no different. What I'm saying here is that people don't want to be a part of any of them because they are deeply aware of unresolved issues in their heart. And they know that, that engaging in the way that Paul is engaged here. And in the case of Paul, this isn't an issue that I have here, so please don't hear me giving you any underhanded commentary, but Paul is deeply loving people who are not even returning the favor to him right now. Yet he's able to love them in the name of Jesus. And so what happens here is when, when we have unresolved issues in our heart, a person will avoid becoming a part of a church community like the Bible teaches 
because they likely know that to get to know people means they have to open up and let their guard down. And that can actually be a real, a real problem. And sometimes this is for good reason. Maybe there's been legitimate hurt or somebody's been taken advantage of in the past. But I, I can just tell you in the amount of time that I've pastored that usually there's, there's both of these things. There are just people that have been wounded and they're cautious and that's wise. And then there are people that have not been wounded. They just don't, they don't want you to be a part of their life or you a part of theirs. It's sort of like the great Gandhi quote, which I deeply disagree with that said, Jesus I like, but you can keep these Christians. And that's just ridiculous and arrogant. And a lot of people function from, from that belief system. Jesus I'll take, just to love stuff, but you can keep everything else, okay? And so what happens is these folks, they become masters at, at keeping people at arm's length. They are around people at times, but not really in their lives or vice versa. And consequently, they miss out on the blessing and the support of the family of God. And the challenge with this way of thinking is that Jesus literally calls the church an infirmary, a hospital in the gospel. So it's sort of like this person recognizes there's a sickness. They recognize they have stuff going on in their life. And instead of seeing the people of God in healthy environments anyways, as folks that are there to care for them, they, they, don't, they don't read verses like what Jesus says. I mean, he literally describes the church as, as a hospital. And the idea behind that is that this is meant to be a place where we can walk into limping, we can walk out of here super healthy, and anything in between of those, those two poles. And so a healthy family of God, whether this is corporately or in the individual way that you treat people or the way people are treating you, one like ours, it, it's meant to be a place where you go to deal with that stuff, not a place you run from. And so I simply ask you, in your own life and in the lives of the people that you know, are you connected to a body of believers? This one, since we're talking about it today, in a way like Paul is described in 1 Corinthians. Because if you're not, I think it merits the question of asking why. This could certainly be a reason, or maybe some of the other ones, or maybe something I don't even mention today. But this is without doubt one of the greatest things that keeps people from plugging into community, is they have a challenge with the fact of, of recognizing that they, they are broken in areas. And the funny thing about this is like, we're all broken in areas. That's where the, the playing ground is very neutral. So we have to have a different perspective. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. He doesn't say, well, come to me, all of you who are perfect and squared away. And some of us might be more squared away than others, but the love of Jesus in our lives is not any different. The unsquared away and the squared away receive his grace. And so we should be a part of that with each other. Second reason why I think people really tend to avoid meaningful relationships in a church family is it's sort of connected to the first and maybe we might say it's it's like the other side of that coin it's because they deal with the unrealistic idol of, of perfectionism uh, they grew up maybe under this destructive wisdom and this is not just something that takes place in the church you can see this in a lot of areas of life maybe they were taught that that being vulnerable and open with somebody and by vulnerable and open i don't mean like Become a part of a church family and come down here every Sunday and tell everybody everything about your life. I don't mean that. I mean like you have somebody or a handful of people whom you can be very honest with. Maybe they grew up in a place where they were told that being vulnerable or open with anybody, it's a sign of emotional weakness. And we have had a, a pretty long run of that idea in our, in our culture for quite some time. It's sort of like you're discouraged in doing it because it's a broadcast to the world that you're not as perfect on the inside as as here's the key idea is you hope others see you on the outside and so in, in extreme cases of this type of thinking what happens is some people not all people but some people buy into this lie uh, and on the other side of the fence they actually believe they are more perfect than the people around them so you have some people who think well I could never be around religious people maybe they've hurt me in the past or maybe uh, you know I've heard those stuff Jesus is thinking about my life 
for my life and there's no way I can attain that. You got that side of the fence. And then you've got this like when it drifts to the other end of the extremes. And that is people who actually love being a part of a church because they think they are perfect to a certain degree. And what happens here is, this is an interesting sort of paradox. Those types of folks can really be dialed in and plugged into a church, but they actually don't believe they need anybody around them. In some senses, they see themselves as, as maybe morally or spiritually su superior to other people. It's a bit of the Pharisee complex. Deeply religious, right? But utterly disconnected from the reality of what's going on. And what happens is, is they, don't, they don't have a self sort of woe in them. They just choose to not be around people because they look at other people that are behind them in the faith and they don't want to be tarnished by that. They're easily frustrated with people. You know, you, you can hear people say things like, you know, oh man, man, we live in a world where people don't read the Bible anymore. I say this a lot, it's true. But if we want to live in a world where Christians do read the Bible, then those of us that are reading the Bible have to spend time with people that don't read the Bible to help them understand why we think it's important that Jesus said they should read the Bible. You can't look at that and be like, yeah, the majority of the world doesn't read the Bible. I'm going to get lunch, see ya. You have to engage that. And so it creates a different type of perfectionism where, where this person's pride prohibits them from actually discipling, and that's a problem. It's a spiritual pride and a, and a great way to get very far from God, ironically, while you think you are getting much closer to him. You cannot have Paul's attitude here if this is, and, and think about Paul, like if anybody, and he literally says this in Philippians, if anybody had a right to brag, it was Paul. Yet what we constantly see him doing is immersing himself in situations where he's pouring himself out for men and women to know and grow in the grace of Jesus. And so people who worship at the altar of perfectionism, they really do become masters of living in proximity with pe to other people in a different way. But, but in, a, in their heart, even if they are around people, they truly live on a relational island because they fear above all else what people will think about them if they really knew that. So if you're coming from the angle where, where you sort of recognize like you can't be perfect, that's actually one of the foundational understandings of why we need Jesus. That's a good thing if we follow the breadcrumbs to the, to, to the true bread of life. On the other side of the fence, though, you have folks that, that really think they are more perfect than Jesus, and that's an issue for another day. Further compounding this problem, and this is why I say that this issue doesn't solely exist in, in the way we pursue Jesus, but further compounding this problem is that we really do live in a culture that perhaps now more than ever lusts after unrealistic perfection in just about every area of life. It's really a troubling time, I think, that we're living in. Uh, again, I turn to the majority of the social media movements to validate this. I'm not against social media, I use them, but social media has created, and both the sociologists and the psychologists now are beginning to see the, the, the effects of this. There's a lot of writing now about how this has changed us as a people. You have a lot of people who for the last 15 years have done nothing but presented to the digital world a curated version of their perfect lives. And so they, they post these amazing things while they suffer because their life is not as beautiful as their Facebook page or their Instagram page. And then other people look at this and it's a bit of a domino effect and they're like, man, that dude's life is always perfect. You have no idea usually what's going on behind those pictures. Okay, so we've lived, we live in a world now that has sort of made this the normal way that we, that we broadcast ourselves. And so it's kind of crazy that in some senses, people don't want to be around anybody that lives, but they will be around the digital version of something that lives. They will connect like that online, but they will not actually connect with somebody in a meaningful way to make a profound difference in their life. And I know that that can happen through social media. I'm just saying, think about what 15 or 20 years, think about, I think about this for my son who knows a world 
that that never was without like Facebook and these tools. I, I remember when I got my first cell phone, I was in my early 20s, I paid a penny at Radio Shack for it. I can remember a 20 year run without a cell phone. Like in New York, when we were calling each other to play, it was literally kids screaming down on the, I lived in a second story apartment, they were yelling and throwing rocks at my window, at, literally asking me if I could come out and play. Our understanding of how we call on people, how we talk to people, how we connect with people is dramatically different. And there's lots of goods here, but one of the challenges is this, this unhealthy curation and so, uh, of, of perfection. And so ask yourself today, are, are you fearful of opening up to someone here at restoration or in another area of your life, or are you connected to a group of people in a way like Paul describes in 1 Corinthians? You cannot minister like Paul does or be ministered to unless you're committed to people. And if not, ask God humbly why. God's a God of grace, and I promise he will respond to you in a way that is that will show you truth. That's a beautiful thing about God. And lastly, perhaps the most obvious, the one that needs to be addressed most significantly, is that some people just really do have a problem with commitment. And commitment is, there's lots of it in the world, and there's lots of places where we see it waning. And it is indisputable at this point that in, in Christianity in America, it's, it's waning. Now, by waning, I don't mean that the effectiveness of the gospel is going away. What I mean is that over, over the years, we, we've continued to see a pairing away of, of what we call nominal or marginal Christianity. It's the folks that had like a form of Christianity, but were not really rooted into the kingdom in the way that we read about like today. And so over the years, uh, the, the Barna Group, this is one research group I mention a lot in this room because it's pretty respectable, if not like the most respectable group out there. Over the years, the Barnard Group has conducted several studies. This has been going on for about a decade now. Uh, Cross-section studies that address the question of like, why are people like not going to church as much anymore? Or why are the people that do go to church, why are they only going a couple of times out of every five or six weeks? Or why are people that were raised in the church no longer going to church? And how do the people that actually are connected with the church, how do they see it? These are all the studies that they conduct. Well, they did this interesting cross-study uh, to address this issue, to try to get some data on it about commitment to Jesus Christ and the body of Christ. And to their surprise, one of the most prominent things that was brought up was commitment, a lack of commitment. But not for the reasons that you and I are probably thinking. I assumed a, a bunch of things about commitment, meaning like they just didn't want any commitment. That's actually not at all what the problem was. It was, it was a lot deeper than that. What surprised them in the study was the inconsistency and in how some Christians explained and viewed their commitment to Christ. And I want to explain what I mean by that. Using rough numbers, okay? Uh, out of the 100% of, of people that they polled that were in a church or claimed some form of Christianity, 85%, that's a pretty high number, 85% of the self-proclaimed Christians they interviewed said that at some point in their life they made a personal commitment to follow Jesus and that it was a priority in their life. That is awesome, right? I mean, we would say that's a pretty good number. But these studies are designed to ask more probing questions. And so... The sad part of this is, unfortunately, uh, only 18% of those 85% uh, were people that actually claimed to be totally commitment, committed excuse me, to the commitment that they made to Jesus. Uh, and you're probably saying, how does that even work, math work math math mathematically? And I'm going to tell you, I don't even know. I'm not even going to try to explain that to you. Okay? Out of 85% of those people, only 18% of them said that they were really committed to this commitment they made. In other words... A ton of people that made a real commitment to follow Jesus at the end of that statement said, sort of, sort of. And this is what I find interesting, because to me, it's sort of like either do it or don't. I mean, we certainly want process space and growth. That's not what I'm arguing against here. 
But this is not what this was talking about. This was talking about people who follow Jesus, but not really. Yet they still believe they follow Jesus. In other words, they made a real commitment to follow Jesus, sort of. That's what I want to stick with you today. And this is why for some Christians, a marginal commitment to Christianity and consequently community can become the rule of life, not the exception to it. So this is really the main issue Paul deals with as he writes to the Corinthian church. It is the main threat seeking to ruin the Corinthian church. Paul is thanking God for it's when a person, here's the root of this attitude, says that they love God, but they, but they still want to live their own way. They want to do things their own way. And that's what's happening in Corinth, is these folks have proclaimed faith in Jesus, yet they're coming up against the hard reality at times of what it means to, to follow Jesus in new areas of life and not return to places of life that are very far from Jesus. And the interesting thing about intimacy and vulnerability and all these things we've talked about today is that people usually sense this inconsistency in their hearts. And that is almost always why they, they choose to keep people out of their lives. Because if you are truly in Jesus, the Spirit will bring these things to your attention. And to, to invite people into some of these struggles and these difficulties we have, for some people the, the thought of that is just un, is unbearable. They don't want that. And so what happens is some people just want to follow God in some areas of life, not all of them. And in this case, what you are actually doing is asking God to follow you. That's the root of this. Is If we don't pursue Jesus... In other words, if I say I'll take two-tenths of Jesus, so 18% of 85% of Jesus, what that means is the other 80% or whatever the rough number is, those are the places we tell Jesus to follow us. And that is a, a contradictory statement in a faith where the idea of a disciple is one who commits their lives to pursuing another, our Lord, our Jesus is Lord. And so the Bible says this kind of thankful attitude is going to be near impossible and, and, and real hard if, if we disconnect it not only from the grace of Jesus but from each other. And so God's church family is really built on the grace of Christ, impacted people who love, uh, who love people like Jesus. When a church functions like that, what happens is you, you really can go beyond what the Bible calls a form of godliness, and you really can be shaped and refashioned into godliness. And that is why for the remainder of our time this morning, I want you to hear from some of our folks who, who just came back from another country to serve people in, in, a, in a pretty profound way. I want you to see and hear a story of what can happen when, when God's people truly recognize that we are better together and can accomplish more together for God's causes in this world. They have a couple of things I want to share with you. Uh, Bill, Bev, and TL, if you will come down now, that would be great. And they're going to share with you just a report of what took place. And there was so much support from this church uh, and, and getting them over there and providing them with these amazing bags to support the people down there. You were so intimately involved in this that I really felt it was important that you had a, a really good report of what happened. And so I'll pass the three of you this, and I will get out of your way. We have to get this settled. <laughs> Good morning, church. Good morning. We took you on a trip to Roatan about 10 days ago. So many of you went with us through your prayers and through your support, and we're very thankful for that. There you are. <laughs> Roatan's an incredibly beautiful island. It's an island of great discrepancies. There is abysmal poverty, and then there are the lush resorts that the Europeans, Canadians, and Americans enjoy. Their big deal is tourism. William and I went down about 10 years ago, and 
got involved with a children's home, not an orphanage. These children have parents, but the parents can't take care of them. Got involved with this children's home, and we've gone back every year since. This year, we're so glad that TL went also, and hopefully next year, there'll be more to go because we go every year. At the children's home, there are 26 children. Most of them got there because the fiscalia, the police, picked them up in the streets or out of the dumpsters or in sad situations and took them to the home. These are the house parents. Both of them were professional in their work lives, but fell to God who called them to be house parents to these 26 children. This is Orsi and Vanessa Cruz. One of the things that we did obviously was a heavy shopping with your money. <laughs> it was um, many basket loads of groceries and food for the families that really did not know where their next uh, meal was coming from. Um, we did this kind of shopping and then we went out and packed up the groceries into uh, bags uh, to take to these families. It was the generosity of this group is absolutely amazing. That was, that was so much that we could do for these people who have needs a lot greater than most of us have. We went out in the community two days and it, it was really sad. Um, they're in like shacks, dirt floors, no electricity, no water. And then when we brought the um, grocery bags, they, you know, they were thrilled. But they, they're happy people anyway. They're like happy. And they have nothing. And um, so we, we brought the, uh, we took two students with us each day and uh, from the home. And I think their eyes were open. Some of them had been on community trips before, but um, yeah, they were just smiling. And one place, uh, one place that um, we talked to this woman, she said, yeah, I have a little grocery store business, you know, over here. And I peeked in there, and there were like two Lay's potato chips, little baby Lay's potato chips hanging, that's it. And it was like, that was her grocery store. And so it was sad. So I think, um, you know, we made a difference in their lives for a week or maybe may, may have stretched it two weeks, but it's just sad. I mean, it's, it's, um, I felt, I felt it was incredibly sad. That was sad. <coughs> Okay, we are still in the, isn't it the community? A group of women in Florida are part of a group called Dress-A-Girl. And Dress-A-Girl makes dresses for girls all over the world to help stem um, sex trafficking. The idea behind the Dress-A-Girl is if the sex traffickers see a little ragamuffin in the street playing in a dumpster, probably not anyone is looking after her. But if they see a little girl in a 
dress that obviously somebody made for her, perhaps they will leave her alone. So these are three girls from, oh, that's four, four girls from the home. They got their little dresses and put them right on. They were very proud of them. And then they went out to the swing set. And in about five minutes, I saw three of the younger girls taking their dresses off, folding them nicely so they wouldn't get dirty on the playground. How many dresses were there? Um, we took a total of about 35 dresses down there. We gave a bunch to the Clinica Esperanza, which is the clinic that the people in that area use. Okay, each little dress had a little creature, a little toy, uh, not a toy, a little stuffed animal in the pocket. So this is Noemi, and she is so excited with her dress and her little creature. Yeah, these are just of the kids and their rooms. Now here's T.L. working very hard. I'm not T.L. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. One of our jobs was to help the students or help the kids write letters to their sponsors. They do it once a year, thank you letters. And they really get into it, but then when they have to do two, three, four, some, some of them have 11 sponsors, they don't get into it. And so my job was, I said, you know, I'll dance for you, I'll sing for you, what do you want? Just write, you know, write a sentence, keep going here. And, uh, and then finally, I came up with a, none of them have cell phones, of course, and I came up with uh, earbuds that they could listen to earbuds, and they were like writing away, it was like it totally worked, you know, that bribe. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they, 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 the older kids really, you know, with their heart, wrote thank you notes. It was cute. Uh, we brought about a suitcase full of pharmaceuticals there. And I thought, I said to Pam, you know, can we do this? Bring these pharmaceuticals? And she was like, yeah. So uh, some pharmaceuticals, they'll take the label off and then write what the, what the medicine is. Because in Roatan, they don't have any, um, they don't have any restrictions. They just, like nobody gets prescriptions, they just come to the clinic and say, I've got a cold or I've got this happening, and they just hand them the prescriptions. So they're always in need of prescriptions and, or of drugs, and, um, and we brought a ton there. And the pharmaceuticals we brought, some belong to people who were cleaning out their closets, some were from people who had passed away, and a great number of the pharmaceuticals came from pharmacies who were generous enough to give stuff that expired yesterday to me instead of sending them back to the manufacturer. Now this doesn't have anything to do with Roatan, but the music down here from Paul and Rob and Wendell and Katie. This is an all-star plant cast, and we thank you very much. Okay, back to Roatan. <laughs>
where where do we go now? Uh, a children's home that um, when this place first started, it was a uh, a building, and now they're even putting in solar, and it's one of the few installations on the island where they have solar grants from America and Canada largely um, and they also have started a tilapia farm with about 13 or 14 tanks the kids do the work they get paid uh, they're learning uh, skill responsibility reliability and the idea is to uh, provide more protein for the kids the diet when Beverly and I first went down was basically rice and beans which is good, but a lifetime of it may not be all that great. So they're getting more protein now, and this will increase to the point where they'll even be able to sell tilapia at a, at a nothing price to the local community. Uh, this place gives to the community uh, food and tilapia and support. And so the future, um, there's a vision, and they've even created a school which we don't have a picture of, um, a bilingual school, because tourism is, is the institution on that island by which people are going to make a living, and these kids are going to be ready for that. And as Anthony was talking, he usually ended up on the word commitment. Uh, the other thing about the future for Rotan, these kids, there's a floor of commitment being built. These kids are so at ease in talking about the place of God in their lives. There is a spiritual wealth on that island that we experience beyond the uh, children's home with the community that sometimes it makes us realize we've really got it made materially, but is there a spiritual decline? Do not sense that down there. So that I think there's a bright future for these kids. So in conclusion, why did we go? Was it to make us feel good? Not really. We went because we wanted to express relationships. We wanted to express a ministry of presence. These are 26 children who were basically thrown away. To have adults come in meaningful ways and sit by them, talk with them, talk about their future, talk about their past, talk about what they want to talk about is very affirming. These children are the lucky ones. There's still so many in the street and there's only so many beds at the home. Is any child turned away? No. But sometimes is somebody on the floor? Yes. We were very proud to go down there. Did we change their lives? We were with them. We loved on them. But most of all, I think the trip changes our lives. It makes me realize that God has poured into me so much. He's given the gift of speech, the gift of money, the gift of presence, the gift of relationships that I have so that when I go down to Roatan, I can't help but all these blessings come out of me and I want to share them. We want to share them with all the children there. God has chosen certain ones to be in the lives of certain others and I want to show up. We wanted to show up.
and because of your generosity, we did. Think about next year, we're going again. Thank you. Uh, so I could have told you a, a story about people working together for the kingdom, but I think it was better to see one that just happened here, and that's incredibly wonderful. So I'll leave you with this this morning. Um, it is better for us to remain together than it is for us to try to serve God alone. And the, this is just one, I'm confident, of, of tons of stories around the world right now that are being told about the way God is working through the lives of his people, of, of us, of you and me. And so let's be thankful for what God has offered us in relationship with him, and let's be thankful for each other. And I leave you with this verse that will be behind us as we have a brief time of response from 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. One of the main ways we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. Let's pray.